For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Eden Tishona. I'm Mark Didici. I'm Jenna Elliott. And I'm Hope Perry. You're listening to Daybreak. In this Daybreak special series, we're taking you through the last few weeks of Princeton's fall 2021 semester. This is a tale of many emails. Episode 2, International Emails in Isolation. It's Monday, December 27th. At 4.45 p.m. on December 3rd, another email hit students' inboxes. This one, from the Davis International Center, went out only to international students, but its contents quickly became known across campus. The short story? With the rise of the Omicron variant throughout the world, it would be risky for international students to travel home for winter break. Beyond the health concerns, there was the ever-present possibility of the U.S. implementing travel bans that could keep students from returning to campus for the start of the spring semester. Evelyn Howe, a first year from Hong Kong, was planning on spending the break in Canada with some friends since going home would have meant a three-week quarantine. The email threw her plans into doubt. My first reaction was panic. That email made me really anxious. And I remember like I couldn't, I like had a hard time sleeping and I was just thinking about it a lot because that whole idea of having to take a leave of absence, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge consequence. Since the university does not currently plan to offer any form of hybrid instruction in the spring, the email warned that any student unable to return might need to take a leave of absence. Deputy University spokesperson Michael Hotchkiss clarified in an email that while students could work with their dean of student life to try to make a one-semester leave possible, most would likely need to take a year's leave. In short, if a student were stuck outside of the country, their studies could be interrupted until spring of 2023. For those planning to go home over the holidays, it created a new layer of stress on top of the typical end-of-semester struggles. I remember talking to a lot of my friends, and one of my friends was just like, oh yeah, I have like done little to no work over the past few days because I've been just thinking about this, and I call my parents and thinking about like what I want to do. And I feel like that's a huge disadvantage. For Rupert Peacock, a sophomore from the UK, the announcement generated anxiety as well. Obviously, I'd built up in my mind... You know, you work so hard at Princeton and I was doing a five call semester as well and I'm, I'm on an AB and I was, you know, working really hard and thinking, well, it's okay because at least in the middle of December, I'll be able to go home and relax. And then it was just like this question in my mind of, will I actually be able to go home at all? The possibility of a leave of absence and the stressful decisions it created is the result of Princeton's commitment to in-person learning for the spring. According to Hotchkiss, residential teaching, research, and scholarship are at the heart of Princeton's educational mission and are considered essential to the undergraduate academic experience. But for some international students, for whom the stance posed a pressing challenge, that reasoning isn't enough. Janelle Moore, a first year from Kingstown, Jamaica, was in touch with a friend at Howard University. Their virtual learning was integrated as an as-necessary option for the fall semester. And I was like... Like why can Prince like why couldn't we do that? You know, I don't I don't understand why it's such a struggle. I and mean, even if there are lots of difficulties, I haven't seen how they've been transparent, how they how they've told us why um, we can't, why they can't facilitate international students like still coming back, even if it's virtually. I don't I don't see how they've been transparent in letting us know why we can't get hybrid learning and and why we can't be facilitated. For some students, the risk of a leave of absence was too much to wager. According to Hotchkiss, between 250 and 300 international undergraduates chose to stay on campus over the break, though this number includes those who applied for continuous housing before the Davis Center email. That's just under half of all international undergrads. Kanish Kanodia, a junior from India, found that the risk did indeed outweigh his desire to go home. Firstly, I did not want to take a gap year. 
because like it's just you're stuck at home for a year right being in india i don't know how what opportunities i would have to do anything else secondly getting a visa to come back is also like a huge task because the earliest available appointments are in december 2022 which is like next year so then i don't know if i would i would have been able to get a visa in the first place to come back i think another consideration for me was because i'm an rca i have to be back in campus by the 9th of january so essentially i would only have been going back for 15 days even if there was like a 1% chance that does not happen i would have been forced to take a gap year forced to like leave my rca job and everything else that i had going for myself on campus this semester and this year Both Evelyn and John Hill said that most students they've talked to kept their initial plans for the holiday. Most of the people who I've spoken to who are staying on campus are people who were already planning to stay on campus. Most of my international friends who booked their tickets, they kept their booked tickets and they're gone. <laughs> for those who stayed like Janelle and Kanishk, it's been quiet. Oh, honestly, I'm it's a ghost town here. Well, also because I've been in my room for the whole time, I kind of don't want to go outside. It's it's really lonely out there. Kind of like a like a movie, you know? Scared. I can talk to like one person for like an hour a day. I know that's like the rest of the day I'm on my own. So it's also like a lot for me to figure out like, oh, what do I do right now? Like, I can just bike around sometime or like go to the mall nearby or something. Ah, uh, I like just work work a bit on my own. But yeah, I think otherwise, other than that, like there's not like obviously anything happening. So it's like really quiet and really like eerie and scary at times. Yeah. Though Janelle noted that the administration has been putting an effort to make the situation tolerable. There is tigers in town. They're giving away free tickets for inter for like movie theaters and stuff that international students to to help us to do things while we're here on campus. Um, I think there is also well the food. Although the dining halls aren't open, they're making some provisions to ensure that like we're well fed and we're not starving while we're here. Even if the email didn't change many plans, some international students said it felt like an unnecessary warning and an extra pressing concern. I understand also that COVID is definitely like an issue and we need to be aware of the consequences, but I don't think like alarming us or just like having these like messages that cause a lot of fear is the right way because we are already kind of fearful and we understand like we we understand and want to come back and study we're not going to just put ourselves in danger i don't think princeton giving us this ultimatum was a was a fair decision i don't think it was just um because i don't see how it reflects their concern for us as international students they sent a follow up email after the original email kind of saying like oh we recognize that we've created a lot of panic and like in the case in which people are locked out we will try and help you get like exemptions so i mean that was one step closer but to evelyn it felt like a continuation of a trend in university communication with that part of the student body it seems like when they're talking about travel plans they're mainly concerned about us bringing the virus back and being like virus spreaders or like being an inconvenience to the school in terms of like having to help us come back and stuff like that like i'm sure that they recognize this but um uh, like i think it's important to remember that as like 18 year olds to be separated from our families like halfway across the world and not get to see them is something that can have a huge like emotional impact and can impact us in our studies and other areas of life Rupert was able to make it home in the end, 
For him, it's been an incredibly necessary break from campus. I have an 11-month-old nephew who I've been able to see, and that's just filled me with all kinds of joy. My cat actually had kittens the other day, so there's all sorts of kind of happiness and new life and things coming into my life at home, so I'm, I'm so glad I'm here. Um, even though it's only for a month, I think it's definitely the recharging of the batteries that I need after Princeton. For Kanishk, is not as happy of a story. I think definitely it's made me like think a lot about like when is the next time I'll go back home because like you see all your friends going back home and packing their bags and leaving and so you kind of wish you were in that position too. Uh, so definitely just like thinking about oh how am I going to spend my time on my own here? You kind of miss the comfort and the warmth of home. Many students made it home over break. Some, like Rupert, flying thousands of miles. But for others, the virus itself threw a last-minute wrench in travel planning. Amid the rise in cases towards the end of the semester, there was a lot of data talk. Record high numbers of undergraduates were testing positive, and isolation housing was near capacity. But what about the people who tested positive? My name is Julia, I'm class of 25, and I will be concentrating in ME. Um, my name is Sierra, and I'm in the class of 2024. I spoke with Julia Hutto and Sierra Stern, two students who tested positive around Dean's date, about their experiences in isolation housing. Sierra is a contributing cartoonist for The Prince. Julia was asymptomatic, Sierra was not, but both of them had similar experiences of testing positive. A phone call from a Princeton area code and the news that no one wants to hear. You've tested positive for COVID-19. Here's Sierra. She started feeling sick on Friday, December 10th, and decided on her own to isolate over the weekend, since she knew the testing lab wasn't open again until Monday. And, like, I kind of knew, like, it didn't, it felt like a cold, but I was like, this isn't a cold. Like, I 1,000% I think this is COVID, and then I was right. Sierra set the scene for me. But I was, it was Monday, and I was in my room, like, doing my finals. <laughs> so it was the day before Dean's Day, so... You can imagine like I was having a really great time. And then I saw I had a missed call from like the Princeton um, area code, like 609. And whenever I have a missed call from them, I'm like, <laughs> you, that's gonna have to be censored, I'm sure. Like, oh no, um, because like, it's usually something along those lines, like, oh, you're sick or like, oh, something, something like financial aid, like nothing you wanna hear basically. So I like called them back, I was like, hi. And they're like, is this Sierra? I was like, oh no. And they're like, so unfortunately you have COVID-19. Julia is from New Orleans and Sierra is from Los Angeles. So when they tested positive so close to break, both of them had to deal with changing their flights home. Sierra told me that was her first thought when she got the news of her test result. I just started crying because um, I really wanted to go home and my flight was on the 16th and it was the 13th of that day. And I was like, oh, my flight, I'm gonna have to change it. And I did the math and since isolation is 10 days, I would be done on the 23rd. And like, if anyone knows anything about airplanes, the closer you get to Christmas, the more expensive they are. And so I was like, oh my God, like it's gonna cost so much money to like change my flight. Julia told me something similar. She was supposed to fly out on December 20th, just five days after her results came back positive, and she found out she didn't qualify for any travel assistance. I for the same stuff that everybody else applies for. So um, I went on the website, like looking for the different types of aid that you can apply for. And the only one that you can use for travel is one for low-income students, and I don't qualify for that. Since Sierra was symptomatic, I asked her how she was able to get supplies to take care of herself in isolation. 
She told me that she was assigned an isolation coordinator who she was supposed to email if she needed anything. The Tylenol that was provided for her upon her arrival wasn't exactly what she needed. Here's Sierra. So I was like, hey, can I get some cold medicine? And they're like, yeah, you can purchase it through like, I don't know how to pronounce it, like Santee Pharmacy. And then they make deliveries every single day to Makosh. And then from Makosh, someone will take your delivery and bring it to you. But the like twist is that you have to like pay for it, uh, which sucks because I, um, I don't know, I didn't want to. <laughs> I thought that they would like sort of have like cough medicine for us and I don't really. Um, so I sort of went like three days without it. So by the time it kind of got to me, I only really used it one time. That was a little bit, you know, disappointing. Sarah also had a confusing experience with figuring out what date she would get out of isolation. When she tested positive, she was told over the phone that she would get out on December 23rd. But on the 21st, while in isolation, she got an email telling her that she could leave the next day, the 22nd. She emailed her isolation coordinator to clarify the situation, and they reaffirmed that she would be getting out on December 23rd, like she was originally told. Sierra's coordinator then gave her a call. And they sounded like really frazzled and like tired and overworked um, because, you know, there's a lot of kids in isolation right now. And she was like, you haven't been returning any of my emails. Every day, the isolation coordinators send their respective students an email asking, in Sierra's words, quote, are you dying? The students are expected to respond with any symptoms, a temperature check-in, run-of-the-mill stuff not unlike last semester's daily symptom check. In Sierra's case, it seemed like the sheer mass of students had caused her coordinator to miss her responses. Sierra said the coordinator had even forgotten the reason behind their call, to clarify her release date from isolation housing. And I think it's, like, less a product of, like, a failure on the university to, like, be organized and more just, like, they're putting a lot of pressure on a very limited number of people and, like, a lot of clerical work on, like, health professionals that they probably shouldn't be burdened with. That's kind of a bummer. I had to ask about the food in isolation. Was there enough of it? Was it good? Here's Julia. There's, like, a little wreck they put our food in it's all in uh bags like there's a bag for each person i come back to the dorm i have one bag that i've been sorting the good snacks in that they give me and one bag with the bad snacks that they give me because i feel bad for throwing anything away so i'm just gonna like give it to my dad or something but i sort all my food the portions that they give you are like really big and i can eat about like a child's meal at a restaurant size amount of food so I like eat what I can and then I'm terrified that one time they're going to give me something really disgusting and I'm not going to want to eat it and I'm not going to have anything to eat. So I like save my leftovers and I've been hoarding them in the fridge. So like today for lunch, they gave me a salad and it was, I'm not like big on salad. So I just like ate leftovers. Sierra is a pescatarian and she told me that she was surprised about how accommodating the meals were in isolation. They gave her fish basically every lunch and dinner. But overall, the isolation experience sounded stressful and confusing, albeit with ample food supply. Julia described how the instructions she got were entirely over the phone. She didn't see anyone and had to carry everything to the isolation dorms herself. It shouldn't be surprising because of the name. It is called isolation after all. But the experiences Julia and Sierra described sounded especially difficult because they had to figure things out while alone, during one of the most stressful times of the semester, and while dealing with a positive test for the virus that has dominated the world for close to two years. That's all for this episode of A Tale of Many Emails. There's another one out now, 
available wherever you're listening to this one. In it, we tackle the last big email of the semester, the one that moved finals online. Today's episode was written by Mark Dodici, Jenna Elliott, Hope Perry, and Eden Tashoma. Sound engineered by Hope Perry and myself, Francesca Block, and produced under the 145th Managing Board of The Prince. Our theme was composed by Ed Horan, Class 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Francesca Block. Have a wonderful day.